Welcome to Office Hours Air. My name is Noah Sviven, and I study history here at Stanford. I'm the host of this program, and this is our fourth episode. You may have noticed that our name has changed from Living in Time to Office Hours Air. Our hope is that this name change will make clear what the show is about, our guests' work, and the experiences in the lives of our guests that led them to that work. Office Hours Air is broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio, 90.1 FM, and available online as a podcast. We are in the process of getting taken up by the Stanford Daily, and then we will be on the air and on the web on the Stanford Daily website. But enough of that. Our guest today is an extraordinary man and a friend. Thomas Sheehan is a retired professor of religious studies. His books include The First Coming, How the Kingdom of God Became Christianity, which explored the controversial view that Jesus was not the Son of God, but simply a prophet spreading God's words. Karl Ranner, The Philosophical Foundations, Making Sense of Heidegger, A Paradigm Shift, among several other books. Right now he is working on a paraphrased translation of Martin Heidegger's signature work, Being in Time. In his youth, Sheehan spent 10 years in seminary training for the priesthood before being asked to leave. Around the same time, he also worked with Mexican farm workers in their movement for better treatment. And in a moment, we'll ask him to tell us why he got defrocked before he was even ordained. In the 1980s, Sheehan traveled to El Salvador during the Salvadoran Civil War, writing about the conflict for the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, so his interests range from Greek philosophy to Roman Catholic thought, and from modern European philosophy to urgent social issues. His is a life of the mind and of the world, and his example can serve as an inspiration for the young seeker. Sheehan is the father of three remarkable people, a beloved teacher of many devoted students, and now an old man with wisdom to share. Professor Sheehan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Noah. I especially like the old man part. <laughs> Now, you've spent thousands of hours thinking about Martin Heidegger and his writings, and you've been an activist here in California and in Latin America. What's the relationship been between your academic work and your activist work? Before we even begin, Noah, you mentioned that today is November 1st, and I don't think we could continue the discussion without remarking where we are and what's happening. That is to say, without remarking on the horrific massacre of 1,400 people, innocent Israeli citizens, men, women, children, and their abduction of over 200 others to Gaza. And now, as a result of that, the citizens of Gaza are paying a high price for those murderous crimes of Hamas. As anyone who looks at the news knows, under the aerial bombing of some 27 days now, Gaza's becoming a moonscape. Uh, just yesterday, for example, uh, six U.S.-made bombs hit the center of a refugee camp, Jabalia refugee camp, which is about two miles north of Gaza City and houses up to 116,000 refugees. And reportedly, those bombs killed one Hamas commander while destroying some, something like 15 buildings, 50 buildings, and killing untold number of refugees. We think it's in the hundreds. I mean... 8,000 Gazans killed in 27 days. And my concern is that the U.S., my own country, is directly or indirectly enabling that. It has vetoed a humanitarian ceasefire in the United Nations, even though 142 other nations called for that. It was joined by a small coterie of heavy hitters like Fiji, Tonga, and the Marshall Islands, etc. I just wanted to say at the beginning of our conversation, this bombing has to stop. The U.S. has to insist on an immediate ceasefire for humanitarian purposes to end the bombing, to end the shelling. Uh, Gazan civil society is just collapsing. 
40% of the population are children. Over 3,000 of the dead are children. That's the whole next generation that's impacted. So I just wanted to say publicly for myself that the U.S. must, for the good of the Gazans, for the good of Israel, in fact, and for the good of whatever vestige of good name the United States still has in the Middle East, for the good of all of us, it must stop the killing. Let it not go on in our name, Noah. I'm curious what your view is on, on how we can kindle a sense of awareness about, about horrific events that happen far away. Modernity has put us in this position of incredible interconnectedness and, and interdependence. And yet, even though we are more dependent on, on one another than ever before, it is easy, it is, that, it is automatic to, to not think about what's happening beyond, beyond our immediate view. I suppose this is the purpose of, of ethical projects like faith communities, or it can be one of their purposes. But, but I mean, how, how can we go about kindling this sense of, of the intense realness of that which we cannot see? Well, Noah, let me ask you, as an undergraduate finishing up... Uh four years here at Stanford. You know better than I uh, the mind of students, of your own class, your friends. Um, what is it that Stanford does do to encourage that, and what could it be doing? And I'm thinking specifically about professors like me. I'm retired now, but uh, well, I still give the occasional lecture. What is it that a professor might say that could, as you say, kindle that awareness and maybe a response to crises that happen far outside the bubble of Stanford? Well, I mean, I think that the, the, the beginning has to be acknowledging it and saying something along the lines of, of how you began this program. Lots of students feel intensely about the situation and, and, and lots of people feel intense sympathy um, Although I would say that there is a portion of the community which feels intense sympathy for one category of of a victim um, over the other, right? And I, I acknowledge the, the complexity of, of the situation, but um, I mean, at least for me, I think it's important to start from a humanitarian perspective that says every life is precious. Um, and I think that acknowledging that it's an important starting place, I think. Um, and I, I suppose there are some people on campus who, who for fear of um, how people might react, aren't commenting upon it, but, but uh, some, some people are, I, I don't know. I mean, over, over the course of your academic career, how have you seen people handle intense um, current events uh, in, in the academy? Well, the first step, uh, as you mentioned, is to just be aware, awake, noticing. And, of course, Stanford students, academics everywhere, are aware or can be made aware of what's going on, crises elsewhere. Of course, it's, it's, uh, it's problematic, as you point out to say certain things on campus today. I mean, um, I'd like to talk about uh, what is called cancel culture um, by the right wing, really. Uh, I really wonder who's getting canceled in the academy. But in any case, to go back to your point, you've got to realize, then you've got to make a judgment or a set of judgments, reformable judgments to be sure, and then you have to act on them. It strikes me that uh, learning, knowing, judging, and acting are what education is about, whether that's personal, social, political, uh, whatever. And so I'm troubled by the fact that um, not at Stanford, but maybe outside the bubble, uh, the study of history 
is uh, really on the rocks, I think. Uh, I believe that something like 14% of high schoolers in the United States when they graduate from high school are proficient, considered proficient in history according to academic standards that I know nothing about. And that means that the other 86% are less well-informed about economic history, social history, political, cultural history. Um, The United States role, for example, in foreign countries, etc. Without that sense of history, as Santayana says, uh, uh, if we don't have an awareness of our past, we're doomed to repeat it. So the question still uh, is alive. You know, what can one say in a classroom, on a campus, at a university that would awaken, that is to say, help people see, help people make judgments, not impose a solution, but lead people to their own judgments and solutions, but then also take action and have the courage and the wisdom to act on the convictions that one one forms. I think a fundamental question here is is for whom our universities exist and, and who they're meant to serve. I think a cynical answer might be that there are as many answers to that question as there are faculty and administrators and trustees. But if we're hoping that it's possible to organize people around common causes, then, then, then we have to hope that there's some kind of um, view about the purpose of universities around which we can coalesce. I mean, one answer are the people paying tuition. One answer are the students who are enrolled. Those two categories are different. One answer are donors. Uh, one answer are the alumni. In reality, it's a mix of all of these, probably. And um, I mean, because these people are, are the most um, connected to the university, the broader public necessarily or, or you know, is, is you know, the, 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 the person who's not, rep- the, the, the category of people that's not represented in the room, despite the fact that it's the biggest category. I mean, so, but, but how, how have you thought about the purpose of, of the university and, and the relation of the work in it to, um, to, to, the, to the wider world? Well, one way that I think about it is the fear that I have that there is a war against the university and against what uh, we do here. Um, uh, I, I'm reminded that... <laughs> Uh, Something like three years ago at the National Conservative Convention, Senator J.D. Vance, he was not yet the senator from Ohio, uh, but was a candidate for the Senate. J.D. Vance gave an hour-long lecture to the National Conservative Conference entitled, The Universities Are the Enemy, unquote. And I've listened to that. You can hear it on uh, YouTube on, and it's incredible. He's channeling what uh, President Richard Nixon said uh, years ago in December of 1972. It's in a taped conversation with Henry Kissinger. After he said that the press is the enemy, he said, and I quote, the professors are the enemy. Write that on the blackboard a hundred times and never forget it, unquote. That to Henry Kissinger. Of course, that was in the middle of the Vietnam War, and uh, Nixon was very hot under the collar as he said that. But you might say J.D. Vance talking to a bunch of conservatives, uh, that's a you know, that's small change. However, uh, I'm not sure how many folks know this, but the... Uh, Koch organization, that's Charles Koch of the Koch brothers, one of the brothers is now deceased, um, is on a campaign to fund universities, chairs, professors, and students, uh, and push them in a radical right-wing direction. Uh, Over a period of like 15 years between 2005 and 2020, Charles Koch who is richer than God, uh, donated well over 
$400 million to 507 universities. Universities are cash-strapped these days, not Stanford, not Harvard, but state universities, private universities are cash-strapped. And he donated $1 million each to 36 universities, $130 million to George Mason University, uh, to three institutions there, very right-wing institutions, right? Uh, he has funded things like, you may know this, Noah, campus reform, where students are paid to write articles exposing so-called left-wing professors. Uh, we had this story that there's a crisis on campus, free speech, et cetera, et cetera, right? I wonder who really is being uh, suppressed on uh, campus when you've got Charles Koch putting that much money into forcing cash-strapped universities or pushing cash-strapped universities uh, to the right. That's my concern. Now, you you were let's see, you you were born in 1941, if I remember, and 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 so. I, I, I want to ask about your memories of, of Vietnam as a, as a young adult and about um, how you got involved in, in the Mexican farm workers movement. I mean, I know those aren't contemporary to each other. I don't think they are, but... Um. Yeah, I guess that's... Uh, well, there's a long story there. Um, I, I grew up in San Francisco in a working-class family in the Mission District, my mother was a seamstress, my father a longshoreman, and eventually a union organizer. And uh, union politics, and uh, th that was what we talked about around the table. That's what I heard uh, growing up. It's a long history in my family of union organization, going back to my grandfather, uh, organized boilermakers in the uh, time of World War One, etc. Uh, my dad, who was uh, one of the earliest uh, members of Harry Bridges' uh, International Longshoremen's Association, eventually became the ILWU, um, who, and went on strike 1934, the big strike 1937, and all the others. So that that was the background that I came from. And you mentioned that I was in a seminary. I joined a seminary uh, studying for the priesthood at the tender age of 14. And there, I think, a sense of uh, social justice, working for other people, uh, for the disadvantaged, that was inculcated in us. So that uh, I date my own uh, waking up to social and political injustice. Uh, in 1960, when I was 19 years old, I went to Alviso, California, and never saw poverty as close to San Francisco as 50 miles. Uh, uh, poverty based on the hard work and the exploitation of Mexican farm workers, braceros, and American citizens in the valley. So I set about uh, working with um, courageous men like Ron Burke and Donald McDonald. These are the people who helped to organize Cesar Chavez uh, in the um, Farm Workers Union. This was even before the Farm Workers Union, and that was that opened my eyes to uh, what I wanted to do with my life. I guess, whether it be in academia or in activism, uh, and so on. That's that's where I got uh, my start, Noah, in uh, working with the Spanish speaking, and then I went to Mexico uh, for a period of, I guess, five years, six years or so, every summer. I would work in the valley or in teaching or, uh, yeah, mostly teaching in Mexico. And this is at, while you're a student in seminary. Yeah, yeah. Then I got uh, uh, thrown out. Uh, they caught me reading uh, Marxist literature and French worker priest literature in French. I think, you know, they, they had, they, that is say, the faculty, it was very repressive uh, environment, I might say. Um, they had the right to just go into your room and see what you were reading at any time when you weren't there. And instead of finding pornography, which is probably what they were looking for, they found these French 
worker priest manuals that I was reading and Marcuse and Marx, et cetera. So they invited me to leave. And that was the nicest thing, best thing that ever happened to me because it got me out of uh, uh, a very repressive situation, but one in which, as I say, I had learned in spite of the seminary, but also because of what they taught us to get involved in uh, social and political action outside the bubble. Your book, The First Coming, How the Kingdom of God Became Christianity, on the historical Jesus, I, 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 if I'm correct, it caused a controversy at, at Loyola, where you were on the faculty. Um, I, I want to ask about that experience of, of publishing a, a scholarly work and um, dealing with the, the reception of it in at, at a Catholic university. Well, for uh, decades uh, within Catholic and Protestant Christianity, and in Judaism as well, there has been a radical paradigm shift in how one reads the Bible. Does one read it as an historical document, as fundamental Christians would say, that is accurate and and true in every detail? Is it an historical document, or is it, in the best sense of the terms, a work of propaganda? That is to say, it's it's making a point, trying to convince people to join a movement, and in so doing, creates stories about its founder and about its own history. Anyway, in the Catholic Church, uh, scholars were slower to come to this information because beginning at the turn of the into the 20th century, Catholic Church came down like thunder on all progressive and uh, scripture scholars. They termed it modernism and fired people from jobs. So the Catholic Church was kind of under a dark cloud when it came to information about the Bible until the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. And I started to read that stuff, and it Radically, it was fabulously interesting and radically revised how I thought, how scholars think, really, about the historical Jesus. So I had the temerity to write that up in a book that called into question the historicity of the core of Christianity, the resurrection, and the divinity of Jesus. This is stuff that other scholars have been saying for quite some time. Catholics in a bit more muted way, Catholic scholars. Uh, And it uh, hit Loyola University, um, I guess when they weren't looking, it was not the most advanced in terms of scripture scholarship. And so they tried to, they harassed me academically, tried to fire me, and uh, we finally resolved it in my favor. Can we talk about uh, what role is left for God um, when when Jesus is, is considered a historical figure? I mean, it, in other words, what role does God play in, in, in your book, The First Coming? First of all, uh, in the broader question that you first asked, you know, uh, about God uh, before, before you mentioned the first coming, uh, that's going to depend, of course, on the person who is relating to God or to their notion of God. Secondly, you said, what is the the role of God in the first coming? Um, Jesus preached the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God. What did that mean? Uh, It meant at least the end of injustice. It meant that Judaism and Jesus was preaching only to Jews, had no intention of founding a Catholic church or a Christian church, right? Was simply a reformist charismatic figure within Judaism in the Hillel tradition. Uh, Jesus announced, following in the footsteps of John the Baptizer, that the end was near and that people had to change their ways metanoia, he called it, or it's called rather in Greek, uh, a conversion to justice and mercy and in preparation for the imminent arrival of God's kingdom. 
One way of saying that is that God would be found and even proleptically was being found only in the human community, the community that he preached to, perhaps even those beyond it. So one could almost speak of um, an incarnation of God in human beings, in his people, if you will. Um, Because Jesus was uh, murdered uh, by the Romans uh, before uh, he could see whether God was whether that uh, promise could be fulfilled or not, we'll never really know uh, what he had in mind for the kingdom of God, what it would be like if and when God arrived in all glory and fullness and and uh, put an end to injustice. Uh, but we do know what he preached in the meantime, a common table fellowship where there was no hierarchy between the powerful and the powerless, an inclusive community that included prostitutes, even tax collectors, even Republicans—take that uh, back—publicans, not Republicans. Uh, It was a broad-based community that was devoted to communal living. Uh, Not a bad start. Uh, Later on, after the death of uh, Jesus or Yeshua, uh, his followers, in effect— beat Karl Marx to the punch by living in common, devoting all of their means in common. It's almost like from each according to his ability to each according to his or her needs. Uh, that was That's an idealized vision of that community. But why should we settle for less? How, how would you describe your relationship with the Catholic Church today? I think it's a a brilliant tradition that often forgets that it is evolving still and needs to to be honest with itself about its conservatism. That would be one way of uh, putting it. The the best of the Catholic tradition, and I'm speaking only of, of part of Christianity, the best part of the Catholic tradition for me in San Francisco in the 1940s and 50s is that it was an immigrant church still, Irish, Italian mostly, and it was a laboring class church. Uh, If you went to church on Sundays, there were not many rich people at Mission Dolores Church where I went. It was mostly blue-collar workers and their families. And the church was invested in union organization, of uh, supporting strikes. Uh, Father Peter York in San Francisco was famous for uh, backing striking workers, Teamsters and Carmen, uh, way back forever. Anyway, that's, the to me, the best part of the Catholic Church, that emphasis on social justice, on what the liberation theologians call the preferential option for the poor. Um, I learned that I think as a kid, I learned that in the seminary. I certainly learned that in El Salvador, working with the uh, Jesuits there, most of whom got killed by the U.S.-backed army in 1989, um, that the purpose of Christianity was not to get to people to another world, but to bring about justice in this world. Let, let's take up the the uh, Salvadoran Civil War. Uh, how did you get involved? And and I suppose first, can you can you talk about w- what this war was um, for those of us who who are unfamiliar with 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 the events? El Salvador, uh, the smallest smallest country in Central America, um, has been had been and still is, really, had been under the oppression of wealthy landowners from the 19th century on. Uh, And coffee was the main product in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, etc. And uh, coffee workers had, and the peasantry in general, had Uh, conducted a revolution in the 1930s that led to La Matanza, the massacre of thousands of peasants. And there was no real 
left movement going on until after World War II and especially moving into the 60s and 70s when the Jesuit University uh, was training Jesuit seminarians in social justice, many of whom then left the seminary and in effect went underground and formed Marxist Christian revolutionary groups. There were five of them that uh, finally, after years of organizing peasants in the hills of El Salvador, Salvador is a tiny country. It would fit between San Francisco and Monterey in, a, in effect, but it's very mountainous. So uh, they could hide in those mountains among the peasants quite easily. They organized the peasants and in 1981, uh, opened up a revolution against the country. The United States came in on with all four feet to defend the basically fascist uh, dictatorship of El Salvador. They elected a phony, a phony election, a president in 1982. Um, the war continued until 1989 with the United States supplying a million dollars a day in military aid to the army and the government, which used that for numerous massacres in the country in an effort to stop the revolution, but they couldn't. Finally, the guerrillas crashed into the capital city, San Salvador, took over half of the city, and the army was so terrified that it took extraordinary measures and went right to the university, claiming that the Jesuits were the sponsors of the revolution and murdered all the Jesuits there, uh, six of them, and their housekeeper and their daughter, including a dear couple of dear friends of mine, Ignacio Eacoria being the chief one. At that point, I think uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush decided that enough was enough. His Hart was not in this war the way it had been for Reagan, and they negotiated a solution, a truce. And finally, the guerrillas came out of the hills and into the government. Since then, the country has gone downhill to the dogs. The United States just walked away from the country after uh, the war was over, left it destitute in effect. Um, and now it's being ruled by what can only be called, I think, a fascist government uh, has gone far, far to the right wing. Uh, it's also in the hands largely, uh, in large measure, of drug cartels. Right? And if I may just uh, mention that when Americans notice that there's a huge influx of migrants at the border, many of them from Central America, they might want to look back to the 1980s when the United States made sure that those people could not have a decent future within their own countries uh, when, under the Reagan administration, it did its best to stop any form of reform, forget about revolution, in those countries. You brought Father Ignacio Yacoria to, um, to Loyola, didn't you? Yeah, we gave him an honorary doctorate in 1986, uh, thinking that it would um, serve as a kind of a buffer against the uh, death squads that were rowing around El Salvador. He had received numerous death threats. The first time that I have met him in May of 1982, he was underground because of death threats and was able to come out into the open only later uh, under more or less the, uh, the aegis of the United States allowing him to come out. He was a man who was well known in Washington, D.C., in the corridors of Congress. He was he was constantly giving uh, uh, testimony, etc. Uh, a stellar intellectual figure in Europe and in El Salvador, a philosopher, etc. And one of the most courageous men I've ever met. And funny, brilliant, but uh, was considered too dangerous by the uh, government, so they sent the army in. The Americans, some Americans knew that this was going to happen, by the way, and murdered him and his companions in an effort to stop uh, their inf supposed influence on the war. But that was really too much for America 
to see that many dead priests on top of the thousands of dead peasants. So Bush negotiated a conclusion, which could have happened eight, ten years before. Now what's what's special about liberation theology, and how, do, how does it fit into the rest of Catholic thought? Well, in the 1960s, especially in Latin America, uh, Catholic bishops who for the longest time had been in bed with the aristocratic class and the capitalist class, uh, somehow perhaps through the inspiration of uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third, the opening up of the Catholic Church to the world, as it's sometimes said, uh, met in Medellin, Colombia, and uh, produced a charter calling for justice and organ teaching theology as a liberation in this life for justice, in terms of justice, right, for people rather than life as a preparation for heaven and eternity beyond. And this was inspired by a number of uh, uh, eminent scholars, Latin Americans, both Catholics and to a certain degree Protestant, and it caught on because for the first time, the Catholic Church was saying things that talked to peasants, which is what the population mostly was, instead of talking to the rich. That's where the phrase preferential option for the poor uh, arose out of the liberation theology of the 60s and 70s. So uh, it drew upon sociological, political, economic analysis often on the left, sometimes from Marxist uh, uh, analysis. Hence, it was accused of being a combination of Marxism and Christianity, which was used as a shibboleth to beat up liberation theology by right-wingers, including American congressmen, Catholic bishops who were right-wing, uh, and so on. Uh, but anyway, the uh, you asked what the core of it was. It was choosing to stand on the side of the oppressed in the name of the gospel. I guess that would be the shortest way of putting it. And to act upon that by helping peasants to organize. And finally, paying the price. There were many martyrs, priests, people, uh, lay people, uh, some of whom I knew, uh, who paid that price for just organizing uh, labor unions, teachers unions, and, and things like that. So, so liberation theology has an emphasis then on the realness of this world, its importance, the importance of, of attending to problems here now. This is also a feature of right, your book on, on, on the historical Jesus, you know, that we, the, the, we have to emphasize this world and what we can do here. You know, I, I've had the you know, privilege of, of working as a, a, a kind of undergraduate teaching assistant with you on your introductory seminar for first-year students titled The Meaning of Life, which is right I would describe as a highlight reel of, of some of the texts you've returned to um, over the course of your career. Um, one of those texts is This Life by Martin Hagelin. And I, 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 I wanted to ask you about um, if, uh, that book and, and what you might share about it, because it was, it was central to, to the iteration of the, the class uh, for which I served as a teaching assistant. Yeah, Martin Hagelin is a professor of uh, a comparative literature at Yale, but he also works in philosophy. And he's written a number of books. This uh, last book, uh, uh, he's working on another one now, but uh, it's called This Life. Uh, and it's about what he calls secular faith. It's divided into two parts. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a, 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 an invigorating read. And the first part is what he calls an imminent critique of certain religious figures. Uh, Kierkegaard among them, etc. What does he mean by an imminent critique? It means understanding from within what those religious figures and their their teachings are getting at 
and showing that from within, what it wants to achieve can only be achieved uh, by human beings taking control of their social situation, their economic situation, etc., cetera, uh, and doing something about it. So it's not an otherworldly uh, goal, but a thisworldly goal. Uh, the second half of the book uh, cashes that out by uh, what I'll call an existentializing reading of Marx, a very contemporary reading of Marx, that argues a number of things. Primarily that uh, because we're mortal, he gets this obviously from Heidegger, uh, life being mortal, time is utterly important to us. And the limitation of our lives, of time, is what leads us to uh, make decisions about what's worthwhile to do during that time. And he argues, I think correctly, that the economic system that we currently live in, the capitalist system, uh, takes time takes uh, 10 hours uh, years ago, 12 hours even before that, eight hours pretty much nowadays, right? And uses that, uh, um, uh, we'll call that necessary labor time. That's the amount of your life you have to spend in order to maintain your life, in order to get a wage so that you can feed your family and house them and, and, and so on, right? Whereas given the finitude of life, what we should be uh, aiming at and what our society should be and our uh, economy should be organized in favor of is maximizing human flourishing within free time, socially available free time rather than socially necessary labor time, to use Marx's term. Um, and he argues that Basically, we're caught in a cycle where workers have to feed the beast in order to feed themselves. If the economy doesn't grow, an economy where uh, certain people profit and others profit less, uh, if the economy doesn't grow, then there are no jobs and therefore the workers can't maintain themselves. They'll starve, in effect. Right? And that cycle is maddening and mad and mad in its in its core, he wants to say. So he argues for the uh, a society based on uh, the principle that socially produced wealth, which is all wealth, right? Everything is socially produced, should be socially owned wealth, and we can decide democratically how to distribute that socially produced wealth. Whereas we live now in a system where socially produced wealth is privately owned and out of that uh, a wage, a percentage is given back to the worker to maintain herself or himself. Uh, by the way, I noticed that, uh, that uh, we all notice, right, that the United Auto Workers have just pulled off one of the most successful strikes, so it seems, against uh, the automotive industry uh, lately and are winning. So the, what, what they, one of the things they were arguing for was less uh, hours of work. They did get that, but that's at least on the, uh, on the agenda in their future negotiations. Something that you are really good at is engaging students in, in, in the class materials. I mean, this is something I've seen firsthand um, in, in the times in which I've gotten to be in, in, in classrooms you've conducted. One thing you're known for are these PowerPoint presentations that are kind of like um, um, stop motion films where, where you're clicking away and each you know click leads to something different on the PowerPoint. and and, and there might be, you know, 150 slides that, that dramatize movement of figures. Um, can you talk about your 
notion of teaching, the ways in which you've prepared for for class sessions and and how it is you you've you've thought about that craft? Because from my perspective, it seems like a craft you've worked at and 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 honed. Gee, I um, I don't I don't know how I prepare. Uh, I don't know how to answer this question. I can only say that uh, I think I'm imitating the best professors that I had. One in particular, the first philosophy professor that I had in the best, a man named Robert Jaguer, a French-American, who taught, uh, who was brilliant, and taught everything, the history of philosophy, metaphysics, uh, epistemology, everything. But he taught it from an existential point of view. Philosophy was not an intellectual exercise. It was not learning how to argue to win arguments. It was not information. Philosophy was living one's life responsibly. And that informed everything that he taught us over a period of uh, two years, uh, starting with the Greeks and going up through Nietzsche, Heidegger, um, and and so on. Um, he taught with passion, and he let his students know that this mattered to him. That he he lived it daily. He didn't just teach it as a profession. And um, Alcibiades says at the end of the uh, symposium, he says, "You know, when I met Socrates, it was like." being bitten by a, 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 a snake, you know, and I was in fevered with passion for, for philosophy, not for studying philosophy, but for being a philosopher, for living a responsible life, which, of course, Alcibiades hardly did. Uh, but Jaguer, uh, Professor Jaguer, did that for me and for many of my classmates, right? Uh, just lit a fire that uh, has really hasn't gone out. Uh, and I guess I simply uh, try to continue that spirit or channel it a bit in my, whether it's successful or not, I, I don't know. It's just who I am and what I do. What have you learned from your students? Oh, gee. Uh, I think I've learned that none of the answers count. All the answers that I might claim to have, none of those answers count unless the question is alive. And that question will change the answers. I think everyone learns that by teaching, any professor learns that. The students bring questions that I have never thought of or never asked, at least. Uh, They bring, in the very best sense of the term, a naivete, that is to say, an open mind, uh, 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 not being so sure that they know everything, you know, the way professors do, as Churchill, I think, famously said, professors know everything. Problem is, that's all they know. You know, the <laughs> students uh, don't pretend to know everything. And in their honest naivete, awaken in me uh, a desire to re-ask the questions and find answers with them. Uh, that's what I've mostly, I think, overall learned from students. And, and at Stanford, it's, it's, it's on steroids. I mean, one is dealing with sensitive, bright, uh, promising students who uh, I've never had to push to read, to study, to learn. If anything, they've pushed me. What about your your children? You know, you're the you're the you're the father of of three sons who are all you know, professionally successful. Um, but you know, I've had the chance to speak to to some of them, and and they're also you know just kind people. 
I mean, what, 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 what have you learned from being a parent? What have your children taught you? Gee, I was, I was talking to my wife, Diana the other day about that very thing, and we were both saying how much better they are than we are, smarter, more sensitive, um, more uh, amazing, really. I mean, that may sound like a parental bragging or... But no, it's it's admiration. And I, I think that in seeing our three sons, uh, Daniel, Matthew, Patrick, two of them graduates of Stanford, one a graduate of Santa Barbara, um, in seeing them live their lives, I, I see a generational hope. Uh, I, at the uh, end of my life, feel sometimes depressed and in despair over uh, the situations that we the situation that we live in politically economically socially even culturally right and yet on the other hand i see this generation you noah my sons the stanford students i've had the privilege to know and teach right uh, i just see energy blossoming, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, drives their young age, as Dylan Thomas might say. Uh, and that's what gives me hope. So I'm not just bragging or admiring uh, our three sons, but I'm seeing a generational hope. Uh, when my generation has left you a planet that's uh, burning uh, wars everywhere. Uh, when I I see the enthusiasm of young folks, I'm encouraged. I can die in peace. Now, right now, your your main scholarly pro- scholar. Right now, your main scholarly project is is your paraphrase translation of of being in time. I want to ask what it is about you that's kept you coming back to Heidegger over the years. Uh, Heidegger is good on one issue and not good on another issue. And both issues, I think, are essential to a rich and uh, good human life. Um, Heidegger is, in my reading of him, the Heidegger that counts. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't count as far as I'm concerned. But the good stuff is about personal authenticity. Uh, He himself underwent a kind of a crisis before World War and during World War I, right, where in effect his world collapsed, his religious world, his political world, his even his philosophical, collapsed. And out of that, he had to forge, uh, he had to start all over again, thinking his way into what it is to be human. And being in time, a very complex work, is an effort to lead the reader to confront her, his mortality, not as some dread event up at the end of your life, but as built into the very fabric of living to live is to be dying and to be dying means that you're still alive right and facing the finitude of one's existence opens one out onto the question of can i accept this can i live this and can i live it with others that is a very inadequate way of talking about a complex book, and I'm trying to uh, put it in English. The current translations are are accurate and unreadable, uh, so I would like to make it accurate and readable. That's what I'm working on. Uh, but what Heidegger doesn't do is take that next step into what I'll call social authenticity, political authenticity, justice. He still is almost Cartesianly or Kierkegaardianly focused on the self. And 
I think that's a real um, uh, limit and deficit in Heidegger. And we all know about his personal uh, moves. He became a Nazi uh, conservative a piece of work as far as I'm concerned, politically and otherwise. But that early moment still stands. And I think that growing up in the in studying philosophy in the 50s and 60s when Sartre and Kierkegaard and Heidegger and existentialism uh, were competing with Marxism for my attention, at least, Heidegger stood out uh, among the existentialists, if you want to put it that way, as Marcuse and Marx did on the other side, uh, as a way of being at uh, Heidegger at least uh, contributing a discourse on half of what it is to be human, socially authentic, uh, personally authentic, right? Uh, but leaving to others the task of uh, social authenticity, namely justice. That's what I got from Marcuse, Marx, and others. But if I can play devil's advocate for a moment, I mean, what, who are we to sift out or separate the thoughts of a person that we think are generative from the thoughts and actions of a person that we know were wrong? Well, that's, I think, what we're always doing um, in all science, in all philology, in all humanities, we're probing texts, phenomena, people, etc., in the same way that we probe ourselves or our parents or our society, and trying to find what is still good and possible within it and what's just dross. We find that in our own parents, if we're honest. We find that in ourselves, if we're honest. Right? Uh, and I think we do that, or should be doing that, in every text that we read, if it's philosophy or literature, etc. Um, it's a matter of reactualizing, reenacting the possible, where the possible means that which leads to the social good, to what Aristotle calls the uh, koine simferon, the common good, uh, and, and that's what that's what uh, uh, reading is about. It's not just absorbing information. It's always taking that critical perspective. Where critical means finding the limitations, the good and the not so good, right? And forwarding, and motivating, and and moving with the good. As we come to the end of the program, what are your parting words for our audience? Parting words. Parting words. <laughs> for the show, for this particular instance of speech. Uh, well, um, philosophy is kind of my passion, whether it's uh, uh, academic philosophy or, or political action. Or to me, it's, it's always philosophy. Uh, it's a method. It's not content. All science science really is a method before it is a content. And a method means a way that you can keep asking questions. The Greek word methodos means continuing along the way. So a method is a, a procedure, a set of uh, procedures, right, that move you towards that endless question, uh, that, that question to which there finally is no answer, right? Uh, and that, that, what are the, the, the method is simply stay awake, stay interested, stay sensitive and inquisitive, right? That's sort of step one. Be insightful, reasonable, honest as you investigate. That's step number two. Uh, be courageous, and wise in living out the judgments that you arrive at, the decisions that you arrive at. That's what I mean by see, judge, act responsibly. I mean, that's really all that philosophy does is give you that method. It prepares you for living well, what Aristotle calls eudzein, living a flourishing life. Because as far as I'm concerned, philosophy is coextensive 
with life. It begins, you bring as rich an experience to your life and your questions as you can. Philosophy, that is to say inquisitiveness, uh, criticalness, and, act, and action, enrich that life. And then you live as rich and full a life as you can, personally and socially, period. And those are beautiful parting words for this program. Professor Thomas Sheehan, thank you for coming on to the program. No, it's, I feel I spoke way, way too much, and I would have much preferred to question you and hear your side, which was much more interesting. Thank you. That was my interview with retired professor of religious studies, Thomas Sheehan. You're listening to Office Hours Air, broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM. Thank you for listening.